Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast supported by Zendesk for startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, every week we peek inside the Sifted newsroom and we discuss the biggest things coming out of Europe's tech and startup sector, share some opinions, speak to the journalists and the founders with the news going on. This week, we're going to be looking ahead to the new year at what major policy changes affecting businesses could be coming out of the European Union. And we're also here one perspective on why Europe is licking its wounds as scientists in the US become the first to successfully prove that nuclear fusion, a potentially revolutionary energy generation method, could work in practice. We're also going to hear from one founder working in the buzziest startup sector of the moment, generative AI, to ask why investors are getting so excited about this technology and whether we should believe in the hype. Elena, you've just flown back from Poland. I did, and I got to spend a day with Zosha, who is our Central and Eastern European correspondent in her very swanky co-working space in downtown Warsaw. And it's so swanky that next to the doors, you have to like touch your key card to go into different doors. There's a little shelf for you to put your tea on while you touch your key card and then pick your tea up again so you can open the door. That is such a genius idea. It we need so that in smart. Sifted HQ in London. It, we don't have enough doors to need to do that, but it was very cool. True technology, true innovation. <laughs> true innovation. But moving on. So to kick off today's show, we are joined by Zosha Vanat, our Central and Eastern Europe correspondent, and also our chief EU policy stan. Zosha has spent many years reporting from Brussels, so she understands how the EU machine works. And this week, she's been looking at the policy changes that are coming down the track in 2023 that will affect startups and tech companies. Zosha, welcome to the show. So two big regulatory changes that came into force at the end of last year, but will really have an impact this year, are the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Tell us, what are they and why... Why should we be paying attention to them? So thanks, Amy. Yes, you're you're right. We saw the wrap up of those two giant pieces of regulations last year, but we will see their first effects uh, probably throughout this year and the next couple of years. The law, which is more important and more relevant for European startup is the Digital Services Act. It's because... It covers many different types of online platforms, such as social media, marketplaces, search engines, cloud services. Uh, So really, it will have an effect on different kind of businesses across Europe. So this law, basically, first of all, it enforces content moderation rules, uh, rules to fight illegal content on, on those platforms. The, 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 the overarching idea here is that everything that is illegal in real life should also be illegal online. So any kind of harm that might happen online should not be allowed and the platforms are responsible of moderating the content that that appears on 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 their website they will also have much more monitoring and reporting responsibilities those that are cl- uh, classified as big players they will have to comply with new rules as soon as 
in mid-2023. The others, the smaller ones, so here we're probably talking about startups, they will have time until early next year. But already in February, all those companies will have to report to the European Commission to report the number of their active users. So the European Commission can actually define if they are the big ones or they are the small ones and you know which category they fall into. Uh, the DMA, so the Digital Markets Act, is a little bit different because it covers covers mostly the big tech companies. So here, when it actually enters into force, it will create more of an opportunity uh, for European startups, more like the level playing field against the big players rather than more compliance requirements. Great. And something else we'll be talking about later on in the show is artificial intelligence. What have the regulators got planned there? So the European Commission proposed its AI Act uh, in 2019 and the negotiations are still ongoing. We never know what will happen, you know, with European law. Sometimes it takes ages to get finalized, but everyone, all the experts hope that this one will get wrapped up sometime this year, even though the negotiations are really, really tough. This will be the first set of rules to harmonize the use of artificial intelligence across the continent. It will basically make sure that how we, the Europeans, how we use AI is safe and trustworthy. It will probably ban certain uses of the technology, which ones it's still under negotiations, but it could police the use of facial recognition in public places, and it will set strict rules for high-risk AI applications. This is all under negotiations, so we don't know yet which usage of AI will fall under which category this this is something that we will see in the final in the final text probably and then and finally one topic that's been particularly controversial in recent years the gig economy what do policymakers have planned yeah this is again the piece of re- legislation that has been under discussions for years now and the negotiators it seems that it's very hard for the negotiators to find a common ground on this. It's basically the law that will establish in which cases people who are employed by gig economy companies, so startups like Deliveroo or Uber or Vault, they are really employees of of these startups, which of course comes with many more responsibilities on the business side and whether whether someone is or isn't an employee of such such a company will determine whether those people will get new labor and social rights such as minimum wage paid holiday sick leave which of course might create new requirements for the businesses it will also probably be quite costly for those those startups because so far they haven't had to legally employ people so yes this is this is another one to look out for especially for those gig economy startups yeah it's really interesting we've obviously seen some of these gig economy laws come into play in places like spain and it's interesting that now we're going to have a pan european approach to this and how the companies adapt will be a good thing to watch for this year thank you very much sasha thank you 
This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software and CRM for six months free of charge. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of like-minded founders and CX leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com slash sifted. Now, staying on the topic of European innovation, we're going to talk about one potentially world-changing technology and about why Europe was late to the party in its development. We're talking about nuclear fusion. And late last year, scientists from the U.S.'s National Ignition Facility of the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California were, for the first time, um, they conducted a nuclear fusion reaction where the amount of energy that came out was greater than the amount of energy that they actually put in. The implications, of course, are huge, as it could one day mean cleaner energy production for the masses and an end to our reliance on fossil fuels. And while the breakthrough came from the other side of the Atlantic, Europe has not been making big announcements in nuclear fusion. One person who is not happy about this is André Luzkrug-Pietri, chairman of the Joint European Disruption initiative, otherwise known as JEDI. Andre, thank you so much for joining us. Can you quick tell us a little bit about JEDI and what your work there is? Yes. Uh, hello, everybody. So JEDI is the European moonshot factory. So we try to emulate the U.S. organization, which is called the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which basically since 60 years has been at the forefront of most emerging and breakthrough technologies. So what we do is we launch uh, challenges uh, to push forward the frontiers of science and technologies. What we are looking for is pure excellence, breakthroughs, and to try to achieve that in, in, uh, in a matter of time, which is a magnitude lower than usual research projects. Super exciting stuff. And I guess, you know, coming back to this news about nuclear fusion, you were pretty fired up when this came out and got in touch really quickly right in, in the new year with your opinion about this. Why did you decide to write this piece and what was it that got you so fired up? Well, fusion is, is uh, there was this famous sentence by, uh, by Stefan Zweig about Brazil, you know, this country that will be the country of the future uh, uh, in the next 30 years. And we kept, you know, pushing it back to the next 30 years. And fusion is a little bit the same thing in, in technology. It's a bit uh, a, 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 a dream of mankind to, to have basically the, the, the sun in a bottle. So a quasi eternal source of energy, uh, very compressed, and that would help in, in the current energy crisis, but also beyond, and try to solve that with an energy that is basically like nuclear fission, so where you divide up atoms. Here you are merging atoms together. First, it creates much more energy. Uh, secondly, it does not have the, the, the main drawbacks that fission has. That means there is no risk of an uncontrolled uh, chain reaction, which is what very... Uh, rightly so worries us sometimes with uh, with uh, nuclear think about chernobyl or fukushima and there is not no nuclear waste but there is not this nuclear waste that we know that will be almost eternal that will uh, take the, the tens of thousands of years to disappear with with fusion you have nuclear waste but it's much more manageable uh, and and this seemed to be always out of reach because basically in order to do that 
you need to achieve the fourth uh, stage of, of, of matter. So you have solid, liquid, and gas. The fourth stage is plasma, so it's very, very high temperatures. And you achieve them either by compressing. Uh, that is what's happening in, in the, in the uh, heart of, of the sun. It's huge uh, density which creates this, this, this fusion reaction. Or you need to create that artificially. And that's what basically happened uh, at Lawrence uh, Livermore end of last year, end of 2022, is they created a reaction, but that created more energy than it used to, to create that plasma. What we did in the last 50 years is always we needed much more energy to create that plasma than we got, got out. So, so it seems that we're really at the brink of a, of a revolution here. Of course, there's been other you know, projects and attempts at doing this in Europe as well. But why do you think we haven't gotten there in Europe? Well, look, Europe has been uh, at the forefront. There is a there is an international uh, research program which is called ITER, which is uh, based in the south of France, which is not French, which is not European. It's really international, but with a very very heavy uh, European involvement. There is also a very notable experience in the UK, where you basically use mega magnets to confine matter to confine plasma within a magnetic field. Both are very very interesting. But it just takes a long time. And these are really these traditional scientific experiences. What we saw at, at the National Emission Facility, but also what is happening in, in, in several startups in the US mainly, is that you are going new ways uh, and trying to achieve in just a matter of months or years what a usual research program would take decades. And Given the, the importance of energy, given the, the deep energy crisis in which we are, obviously any good news on, on, on fusion is a, is a great one. And so you talked a little bit about you know, speeding up that process, right? What does the story this time tell us about how we should organize you know, public research or even investments from the private sector into these projects? First, there is uh, no such thing as picking the, the winner or picking the winning technology. It's all about experimenting and experimenting several different ways, sometimes contradictory ways, in parallel. And this is so hard, especially for the public side, because you know by definition that when you go different ways, there will be some that will fail. And so you know uh, from the inception that you will you will lose money. But remember, that's what happened in 2020 when we tried uh, 10 different vaccines during Operation Warp Speed. We knew from the beginning that some will, will never materialize. But that's how we achieved this miracle of having a vaccine in, in less than, than, than 10 months. So that's, that's exactly what's happening right now in the US. You're trying this mega magnet technology, but you're also trying uh, what happened at uh, Lawrence Livermore, which is a radically different technology, which is basically you using high-powered lasers to concentrate the matter and, and trigger, that's why it's called ignition, trigger this, this initial fusion reaction in a very small piece of matter that is bombarded by, by tens, sometimes hundreds of, of different lasers pointing on the same, uh, same direction. That's point number one, experimenting. Secondly, it's, it's the matter of the, 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 the aspect of speed. Too often we focus on the billions we invest. Too often we focus on on the names we we support. It's all about speed. I mean, a good technology, but six months or nine months too late is often worthless. And uh, we are increasingly in this world of a, of a winner takes all, or at least the winner takes most. Probably something where 
where Europe needs to, to, to learn. And the third thing is it's about ensuring that we're going very different ways. And here I know that might be very controversial, especially in scientific uh, environments, but, you know, often peer review, which is kind of the alpha and the omega of, of science, that means that you only get supported if your peers are supporting your work. That works very well for, uh, for linear approaches and it has achieved great results in science. But sometimes the very unusual way, the very iconoclastic approach, the very new team that nobody has bet before is the one who is going to achieve the biggest breakthrough. We saw that in math. We saw that in, again, taking the example of the, of the, of the pandemic, uh, is very enlightening. I mean, five years ago, nobody got money for vaccines uh, based on, on RNA. Just ask uh, Kathleen Carico, who was the scientist behind this technology. Today, when you want to develop a vaccine, which is not RNA based, you have a hard time to get funding for that. So this is the kind of mindset that we need to change, but it's hard because that means that we need to plan for the, for the, for the unplanned, that we need to bet on the unexpected. The leaders today, but we need to invent the next big thing. And the next big thing is so hard to imagine because who would have bet that Google search, uh, who had such, uh, such an incredible market share of 90% plus, uh, be so worried now about uh, ChatGPT, who might totally uh, change the name of the game. I mean, currently there's really code red at Google on, on, on that, on that technology. Who would have th thought that on space, where the Europeans were so, so strong just 20 years ago, today SpaceX launched 20 times more rockets, not 20%, 20 times more rockets in 2022 in space than the Europeans altogether. We need to support public uh, research programs, but we also need to support foundations, philanthropies who are doing incredible work in new approaches to research. And uh, we need to make sure that speed, that we just uh, you know, accelerate and put not just the higher gear, but the highest gear on speed, because our continent is definitely uh, too, too, too slow on many of these uh, uh, technologies. Well, I can't wait for the next big thing. You said, you know, we can't, we can never know what that is, but I'm looking forward to it and bringing you back on the show so we can talk about that when it happens. Thank you so much, Andre. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you. And finally, we're going to zone in on the next big thing in the tech investment world. The VCs have got Board of Crypto, the Metaverse and Speedy Grocery Delivery Companies. And there is a new flavor of the month in town. It's called Generative AI. And you've probably seen examples of this all over social media with people sharing AI generated images or outputs from the chatbot ChatGPT, which has been doing everything from writing convincing school and university essays to helping top coders streamline their workflows. One founder working in the space is Tarek Ralph from London-based Catalog, which uses generative AI to build operational software for businesses. Now, Tarek, we'll come to what your business is doing in a minute. But first up, in layman's terms, what is generative AI? How is this new? And why is it so exciting? Generative AI is essentially machines um, mimicking human output uh, it can be in the form of images or text, but it's it's figuring out how to create new data from existing data sets that didn't exist before. It's new in the sense that before we basically had uh, discriminative machine learning. This is generative machine learning. Discriminative machine learning was that you could tell the difference between, oh, here is a picture and it's of a cat. 
machines were could could finally um, you know discern information from uh, things that were presented to it. So you can give it some text and say, "Oh, this looks like this is talking about X or Y." It never created anything new, but generative uh, machine learning or generative AI creates new pieces of information using things that it's learned previously. Interesting. And how does it apply to your company? How are you using generative AI? So we use generative AI across the board. Um, The products that customers get into are based off of what they tell us what they are. So if if you're a vet and you tell us that you're a vet that manages these types of animals and patients, we create a system for that setup based on what you asked us to using generative AI. Everything across our marketing stack and our sales stack, all of the ads are generated are via generative AI. The sales materials are generative AI. Everything across the stack is fully generative. So you've got vets. What other kind of clients? So we've got everything from agencies to automotive to real estate to vets to um, even vineries um, coming up and signing up, which we, we'd never designed the systems to be for a winery, but generative AI allows us to do that at design systems for people at scale. Um, how much time can this save a business? So typically it can take anything from two days to a few weeks to get everything set up. And this is not including the, the time it takes for somebody to understand the tools and the systems. Um, we bring that down to basically 30 seconds. Wow. And what what are the limitations of this for anyone who's starting to freak out listening, thinking, shit, this thing's going to take over all of our jobs? What what can't it do? What is it not doing right now? It, it can't. It does not know what it's doing. Uh, <laughs> That's the that's the that's the sort of crazy thing about it. It's just predicting the next word, and when it does it really well, many times in a row, it looks like a sentence. It does not know what it's painting in a picture. It does not know what it's outputting. It's just gibberish that makes a lot of sense. Will it ever know? And so that's where I think um, what, what all of these big research labs are going after in terms of AGI. AGI is artificial general intelligence, where almost a single model can do anything that you ask it to do like a human would. Uh, It has the ability to discern, understand, reason, and create things just like a human would. Uh, This is is just simple machine learning. For now, I think it's a tool. It's a tool that you can use to get away from grunt work, marginal creativity, and maybe uh, a bunch of things that require a lot of human effort. Uh, it, I think, reduces human effort and increases their effectiveness. So we should, I think, in the near term, treat it as a tool to empower us rather than, you know, anything else. And what kind of jobs, I guess, or work in particular do you see this being really useful for? So a lot of the places where um, you are repeatedly doing something that requires synthesizing information, which is you need to go and read up on a bunch of things and come back with something condensed, right? And so what this allows you, like, for example, if you're a, if you're a product designer and you've been asked to design things about shoes and you've never done that before and you have to go look up shoes and read up shoes and find out everything about shoes, you can reduce that time basically to close to zero and get to designing shoes faster. If you've never designed a shoe before, you can get generative AI to to output some shoes for you. Are they going to be what you can give to the client? No, but it immediately levels you up to a point where you can get to the end state faster. And how, what kind of 
timeline is this going to play out in? What do you what do you predict for generative AI in twenty twenty three? Whatever we've seen so far is V one, and um, is very 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 early days of the technology. I think when it gets really powerful is when people start fine tuning it to specific industries. For example, a large language model that's trained on all of the jurisprudence and law texts and cases that's ever existed mm-hmm. will be able to assist in, you know, um, creating documents for lawyers much faster. And like, you know, for example, you can have chatbots that go and argue with, with agents on the phone and get you a result. But that only means you will now have chatbots on the other end, creating, dealing with more of these chatbots on this end. So there's, there's this... There's this unknown effect on where the flywheel is going to sort of net out. Is it is it going to be on the consumer end or is it going to be on the business end? And if both of them accelerate at the same time, there's going to be some fun consequences, I think. Interesting. Thank you, Tarek. That's some uh, food for thought for everyone going into this year. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. That was a lot for our first episode back in the new year. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu and you can find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. Please also sign up to our lovely, lovely newsletters. We have them on fintech, venture capital, climate tech and startup life. Follow us on Twitter and let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast. You can email us at hello at sifted.eu. Bye.